بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته My name is Hassan Zindah. I'm a student here at the seventh year in the seventh year of Darul Salam Alim Course uh, Seminary Program, and it will be my honor, inshallah, to host you this morning. Alhamdulillah, we have a great lineup of scholars and of programs for today, and so I request and urge all of the brothers and sisters to participate and to benefit from these amazing programs. May Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala give us tawfiq. We'll begin, inshallah, today with a roundtable discussion uh, entitled Overcoming Obstacles, Strategies for Building Successful Marriages by our very own Mawlana Usman Akhtar and Mawlana Hamza Imtiaz. It will be moderated by Mawlana Mustafa Ahmad. Mawlana Usman Akhtar is one of the teachers here at Darul Salaam Seminary who also teaches in the Dawratul Hadith. He completed his memorization of the Quran at Darul Ulum New York and then went to study in South Africa. He completed the six-year curriculum under the guidance of world-renowned scholars and earned authorizations in Hadith from many scholars. Upon graduation, he traveled to Egypt for further, to further his studies and received authorizations while studying privately under many ulama. Upon return from Egypt, he graduated with honors from the University of Connecticut with a BA in Psychological Sciences and served as the Imam and Director of Religious Affairs of the Danbury Masjid in Connecticut from 2013-2018. He currently serves as the Director of the Tahfidh Program and teaches higher-level hadith books in the seminary. As for Mulana Hamza Imtiaz, he currently serves as the resident scholar at the Islamic Foundation of Greater St. Louis in St. Louis, Missouri, he holds several ijazas, teaching licenses in the Islamic sciences as a result of his six years' journey seeking knowledge of deen. He studied under some of the world's leading Muslim scholars, including Mulana Tariq Jamil and Mufti Taqi Uthmani, the Grand Mufti of Pakistan, and Mufti Muhammad Zahid, one of the leading experts on hadith studies today. As for the program we have, I'll give a brief description of it so that we know what to expect. Modern society's ever-shifting values have begun to redefine marriage norms, often to the detriment of its sacredness in the Islamic context. Pervasive issues such as premarital relationships, career-oriented marriage delays, and rampant non-Islamic influence on wedding traditions often erode the foundations of this sacred union. Extravagance has re replaced simplicity, and the sanctity of marital fidelity is under threat. It is critical now more than ever to navigate these challenges by anchoring ourselves firmly in Islamic teachings, thereby realigning our approach to marriage. I will hand it over, inshallah, to Mulana Mustafa Ahmed to continue the program. <clears throat> Bismillah, alhamdulillah. Salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ahlihi wa sahabihi wa man wala Rabbi shrach li sadri wa sir li amri wa ahlul uqtatan min lisani yafqaw qawli Subhanaka la ilmalana illa ma'allamtana Subhanaka la ilmalana illa ma'allamtana Subhanaka la ilmalana illa ma'allamtana Innaka anta al-alim al-hakim Allahumma lah sahla illa ma ja'altahu sahla Wa anta taj'alu al-hazna sahla Iza sha'ta sahla Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati ma yasifoon 
والسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين I'd like to begin with uh, welcoming each and every one of you uh, from the sister's side and the brother's side ahlan wa sahlan uh, we are grateful we are happy and honored to host you in the session may Allah accept your coming and may Allah put barakah in your minds and hearts so that you get more than what you expect or what you expected from these sessions. We'll ask Allah Ta'ala to put wisdom and ta'seer in the words of the speakers to give the intended effect, inshallah Ta'ala. So give you, to kind of expound on what uh, Mala Hassan Zinda was um, giving an introduction of what's coming up in the hour, hour and a half that will be in the session, is I'll dilate on a few things on that, which is, you know, the, the title of the talk itself, or the discussion, it was very um, put together in a very concise manner, which is the first two words, which is overcoming obstacles and the strategies for it, is what that tells you these three, four words is we won't be really discussing uh, idealistic scenarios or fairy tales. We'll be discussing pragmatic issues and their solutions, inshallah ta'ala. And the second part is, if you say, uh, if you see, I wanted to bring up the titles, but uh, I'll say it on, on, on the mic, which is overcoming obstacles, strategies for building a successful marriage. So the key word here is building. So what you should understand or what we should take from this uh, session is the, the, the marriage itself needs to be built. It needs to be nurtured. It won't come in, into itself you know, without any effort. So that's the second thing that you should be noted from the title of the talk. And the third, and which is probably the most important part, is the, uh, the, the two words, which is successful marriage, right? How do you define success? Who defines success? And what is the real success? I mean, we go back to our, our traditions, like what is a successful marriage in the eyes of Allah Ta'ala and His Prophet and the tradition. And the second thing is, uh, you know, as I was thinking for this uh, small, like, in the introduction, I was thinking, like, what is marriage itself? Is that the small contract that we do, which has very small words to be, you know, come into effect? It's like, if the bride says on the request of the groom, like, I do, and that's all it takes for two individuals in, in Islamic tradition to get married. So is that all? But the, if you look at it, the contract itself lasts for a lifetime. If not for a lifetime, even after death. You know, there are many uh, things which come up, like you know, the pious spouses would be together in Jannah. Right? So, this is just two words. I do. How would that you know, have this profound bond between these two individuals for a lifetime or for eternity? So that's something to think about. So that's the second thing will dilate on what is marriage itself. Um, and the th while I was thinking on this too, one example came up in my mind, which I'll conclude my introductory thoughts on this and then we'll proceed to the questions, is you know, when you see the creation of man or creation of Adam salam, the first relation that Allah Ta'ala created after creating the human itself was of a spouse. There was no relation of a mother, or a father, or a sibling, or a child. 
the first relation that was really given to man after its creation was the bond of spouse, bond of wife and husband. So that's profound. You can learn two things from this. First thing is it's that the bond itself is divine. It's defined by divine. So, and the second thing is it's the bond itself is the most basic core essence of human being. So that's the importance of the marriage itself. With that, I'd like to start the questions. Um, this, the, the way this, is, this session will be outlined is, you know, I'll be asking a series of questions to the two scholars on my right, and then they'll, they'll, they'll discuss the topic, and then we'll proceed to the next, as so and so forth, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, with that, I'll open the floor to uh, Mawala Hamza. One, um, I mean, looking at the audience, I, I see a lot of young faces, and this definitely will be a pertinent question to them, which is, what would you look for a spouse? How, what qualities would you be looking in a spouse when you are ready to get married, inshallah? rahman rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala sayyidina wa nabiyyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Alhamdulillah, uh, honored to be on this panel, mashallah, with Marana Usman and Marana Mustafa. Um, as for to get right on to the question, what do you look for uh, in a spouse? From a man's perspective, yeah. Um, I think the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ is the best uh, place where we find the answer. And that is that the Prophet ﷺ, he said, تُنْكَحُ الْمَرْأَةُ لِأَرْبَعٍ لِمَالِهَا وَلِجَمَالِهَا وَلِحَسَبِهَا وَلِدِينِهَا فَاظْفَرْ بِذَاتِ الدِّينِ تَرِبَتْ يَدَاكَ Hadith narrated by uh, Imam al-Bukhari and others that the Prophet ﷺ said that woman is married for four reasons. So this is from the man's perspective. But many of these apply obviously in the other, in the other way as well. And he said that there's four reasons that a man marries a woman. Either for her wealth, either for her beauty, or either for her, uh, her hasab, her lineage, or either for her deen. You can say, hold on to the aspect of the deen, or focus on the aspect of the deen. Uh, which basically is a dua from the Prophet uh, wishing you goodness and success. So, now, this hadith, the scholars of hadith, uh, the, the, the shurah, when they comment on this hadith, they say it can mean one of two things. It can either mean that this is what people normally look for, or that <clears throat> this, this is what you should look for. It can mean uh, either one of those things. But regardless of that, there's two kind of uh, ways that people generally look at this hadith. One, people usually think and say that this means that you should not look for wealth, you should not look for beauty, you should not look for lineage, rather you should just look for deen. Right? People may, there are people that think that or sometimes the hadith is explained like that. Um, and then there's the other aspect where people are usually just focused on the first three. So actually, we find there's plenty of other nusus, there's plenty of other hadith, there's plenty of other evidences that show us that actually, uh, many of these things are, in and of themselves, they're not bad. Actually, many of these things are encouraged. So for example, if a woman is married for her beauty, uh, 
this doesn't mean that the hadith is saying that don't marry a woman for her beauty. It, it wouldn't mean that. So to get to the question, one of the things is beauty that you should look for. Um, and the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ instructed the companion to look and see their spouse before getting married, that's the reason why. The reason why you're supposed to see uh, once at least uh, your spouse, your prospective spouse, is so that you uh, there's a level of attraction there and we'll, we'll come to what that means later on but the point is that um, that is one thing you're supposed to definitely look into um, and then the hasab or the lineage uh, that can probably translate over into our times as the family that is also something you should look for because there are other evidences that speak about that as well uh, you want to ensure that it's a, a noble family righteous family because many times what the family is or the ideals that define the family that do carry on over the, onto the children. Not always, but many times it does. So you do want to look at the family as well. Um, and then the third thing, obviously wealth. Uh, that is something that you have to look at as well in terms of that there has to be some level of, um, you can say, compatibility between you and your prospective spouse. Because if there's a huge imbalance on that end as well, it would make life for one of them too difficult. Because if the, if the prospective wife, you can say, is coming from a uh, very luxurious background, it's going to be very, very difficult for her to live with someone who's, uh, you know, baseline poverty. And, someone, and vice versa, uh, obviously the husband won't be able to provide for her at her uh, normal standard and vice versa as well. Uh, the husband, uh, there could be issues there. But the point of the hadith is that these reasons should not be the driving reasons. So you can marry a woman that has wealth, you can marry a woman that has beauty, and you can marry a woman that has good lineage. Rather, you should. That's one of the factors you should consider. But that shouldn't be the driving factor. The driving factor should be the deen. So based off this hadith, what we've understood is that deen is the driving factor. It's the most, it's like the backbone. You want to definitely look at that. That's the A reason, number one reason. You can't sacrifice on that. And then there are other things that come, but they go back to mostly these three. Uh, they go back to beauty, there has to be attraction there. There goes uh, back to lineage, and many of the scholars they explain lineage to be that uh, lineage will actually dictate that the woman, and this is from the man's perspective, that the woman will have the background of their upbringing to fulfill the different aspects of the marriage. And then the third thing is wealth. Obviously there has to be some level of compatibility and lifestyle. So those are secondary reasons primary reasons to do. MashaAllah, well said. Uh, with that, we'll, we'll pass on the mic to Mala um, Uthman, and then if you can expound on what should a woman look in a husband. Bismillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahabati woman wa ala. Before answering the question, uh, just a quick raise of hands um, for those, let's see, let's start with those that are married. Raise of hands. MashaAllah, tabarakallah. And those that are looking to get married. I guess that's everyone else? All right, mashallah, tabarakallah. Good, so we have a, good, a pretty balanced crowd. Mashallah, tabarakallah, a lot of those that are looking to get married. Um, very beautifully said, Malana Hamza mentioned what we should be looking at from the male's perspective uh, based on the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Your question was from the woman's perspective, what to look at, um, what to look for in a spouse. So generally, like Malana Hamza alluded to, the hadith applies to both men and women. Um, the four characteristics or the four factors that Malana Hamza mentioned. 
From the women's perspective, though, I would add or uh, prioritize, of course, the, the thing that's prioritized is Dean. Um, but a special emphasis uh, from the side of the females would probably be a little bit more on uh, the affection and care that is found uh, in the husband, uh, financial sec security, uh, look for that uh, from the side of the husband, uh, as well as compatibility. And, all, and Molana Hamza mentioned all three of them, but uh, I just kind of highlight these three from the side of the females, what to look for uh, in a spouse. And it reminds me uh, of an ayah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran, between husband and wife, hunna libasul lakum wa antum libasul lahun. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions a very beautiful example and says that you all are, uh, or your, your wives are libasul lakum. They are a garment for you. And they, and you are a garment for them. It's a very beautiful metaphor that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran. What does it mean to be a garment for one another? So uh, scholars mentioned a garment, if we look at it quite, you know, uh, literally, a garment is the closest thing to our body, correct? So uh, to be very intimate, to be very close, someone that we know will be uh, close to us, um, quite literally, like our clothes are the closest thing to us. Uh, secondly, mm, the, our clothing, it protects us. So to look for in a spouse someone that protects us like our clothing protects us. Uh, thirdly, scholars mention just like our clothing covers us, and the same thing when we look for a spouse, uh, a spouse that will cover us, a spouse that will cover our um, weaknesses, our deficiencies. Uh, and fourthly, uh, our cloths or our, our clothing, it beautifies us. So these four things to make sure that we look for uh, in our spouses. If we look at the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, uh, the wife that the Prophet ﷺ most often um, paid respects to and mentioned uh, quite often and spent the most years of his life with also was Khadija radiallahu anha. And uh, I remember once it mentioned, it's mentioned in the hadith, Aisha radiallahu anha mentions to the Prophet wasallam that you always bring up memories of Khadija radiallahu anha. Uh, time and time again, you mention her. You know, time has passed on, it's been years. Uh, you have, and you know, other things, you know, you don't lose memory of that. And so the Prophet ﷺ mentioned these things. He said, when everyone rejected me, she accepted me. When everyone, um, you know, lied against me, she believed in me. And the Prophet ﷺ paid tribute to Khadija radiallahu anha for that. So uh, it goes both ways, like Mawlana Hamza mentioned, uh, the four things that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned. But from the perspective of the female, uh, I just wanted to highlight these. Uh, financial security, definitely. Uh, that... Uh, specific characteristic of affection and love uh, from a spouse and compatibility. That's something that's definitely, definitely uh, important, compatibility. What that actually means, I guess we can talk about uh, later on. Um, but compatibility because the Prophet ﷺ specifically mentioned this. La yuzawijuhunna illa min al-akfa. To specifically uh, marry those that are equal in nature, compatible in nature. In another hadith that comes to mind, the Prophet ﷺ specifically highlighted for men, so again, going back to the original question, that what should females look for, is look for deen and akhlaq. The Prophet ﷺ was asked about a man that proposes to a female, 
And the Prophet said, if they come to you and such people, man tardona deenahu wa khulqahu. Someone with whom your deen, their deen and their akhlaq you are pleased with, then you know, get them married. So these are all things that are very important uh, and um, things that I would say are, I mean, you could say it's kind of arguable on what you're going to prioritize, but kind of non-negotiables, I think. Okay, well said, mashallah. Uh, so uh, the next question is coming up, which is coming up would be um, actually a sub-question of what you have answered, mm -hmm. which is, before the question is uh, put out, before the question is put out, uh, I'll kind of sh want, like to share some uh, stats on where the question is coming from. Um, in, um, in, a, in a study, or in, uh, in a study which says, uh, compared to 1970s and 2020, which is three years back, 60% uh, of the uh, college population is female. So 60% of people who would be graduating from undergrad would be uh, women and 40% would be men. And another study says that 50% of the whole jobs, 50.04, which uh, to be exact, is, uh, are run, are uh, 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 possessed by women. So based on these statistics, uh, how would you, or how would, should, should a woman go about, uh, you know, when a proposal comes, if, uh, if the man itself is learning less or is less educated, mm. what should this be considered or should, if you can expound on that. Okay, so the question uh, you mentioned is if, can you repeat the stats again? So 60% of uh, graduates are female. Yes. From undergrads. And then the second? 50.04 of all jobs are, are held by women. 50% of all jobs are held by women. And then the question, sorry. The question <laughs> is like, uh, you know, if, if a proposal to a, a woman comes, which right. a man who's lesser educated or mm. earns less, okay. how would she go about? Okay, uh, so it's connected to the first question on what uh, a female should look for. And if a proposal comes in which the husband earns less than the female, then what should she do? So I would base this question on the one thing that's most important or the two things that are important. The, to the husband, respect is definitely something that is necessary. Um, and if this in any way, shape, or form, so the constant or the, or, or the factor that's most important, I would, um, I would argue, is respect for the husband. Um, it just like for females, uh, affection and care and attention is most important for most. So if Anything can happen. All the variables can change. Who makes more, who makes less. All these variables can change. But the one thing can't, that can't change is these things, right? Whether uh, the respect will remain there for the male or not. And this is uh, subjective. It's different for every person. Uh, it depends on temperament and what exactly uh, the sister will, that's for her to judge. If it will affect the respect that she'll have for her husband, then maybe that's something she wants to look a little deeper into. Because I've dealt with many um, cases of you know, people that are going through premarital counseling and uh, what a, a male is looking for, what a female is looking for. And one of the things is very, very interesting, uh, just from my, my reading and from my interaction uh, with couples, or couples that are looking to get potential spouses, is that even small things like for example, even things like, 
what we may think as superficial, but like height and age will matter to females. Right? Height and age. So if someone is shorter and younger, then sometimes that aspect of respect doesn't remain. Respect doesn't remain. And if that aspect, like I said, the variables can change. Is this across the board? No. The variables can change. But if there is a deficiency or a lack of respect for the husband, then that marriage will e eventually, uh, you know, dissolve or, you know, fall into to, to issues and marital problems. So the one thing that I think is a constant or something that, uh, you know, has to remain is, 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 is the respect um, for the husband. And if the husband is earning less, and if that's going to affect the respect of the, that the wife has for the husband, then uh, maybe that's something you know, that she should probably look into a little bit more or reconsider, um, spend some time thinking about that. Because like I said, the variables can change, but that shouldn't change. That, that will o overall affect the outcome of, of the marriage. If, if, Malana, if, if you'd like to add anything, yeah, feel just free. Just one thing I'll add is that <clears throat> I mean, uh, mashallah, jazakallah khairan, covered very well. But one thing I'll add is that, and I'm sure uh, both Mona Mustafa and Mona Usman uh, have this in mind, but just for the audience is that most of the time when you actually have a spouse or prospective spouse, um, it's more so, and a good example is that if you want to rate, for example, your experience at the masjid, right? Let's just say here, we can go look at the Google reviews. <laughs> of uh, Dar al-Salaam Masjid, see what the aspect is. If you notice is that things, you, they add up, you get like a point for everything. So for example, when you come into the Masjid, you're looking for cleanliness. That's one important aspect. Then you're looking for, is the Masjid spacious enough, right? And you can delve into cleanliness. Is there a bad smell coming? Is it dusty? Is it clean? Well, mashallah. And then the, the calligraphy, the design, the chandelier, uh, the sound, right? There's all these aspects. And you might go into one masjid where everything is good, but one thing is missing. But you're willing to overlook that because everything else adds up, right? And on the other hand, you go to another place and you're not tolerating bad sound, for example, and someone says, well, in that other masjid, you were perfectly fine. You'll say, yeah, I understand that, but it's not hypocritical because everything else was fine. So with this question, actually many of the questions, sometimes, especially from a woman's perspective, in the man, in the perspective uh, husband, he has everything. And he's excelling in all those categories, but he's maybe not hitting that one for you. Many people will, and you probably should uh, overlook that one thing because you'll never find a prospective spouse that you find everything exactly the way that you want. There are going to be certain things that there are going to be Lacking from your perspective, meaning it doesn't meet, uh, you said a height, right? So it's like the person's not six foot four, they're six foot two, right? I don't even know how many people are above six feet here. But it's just an example to show that you might not hit that specific point, but you look at everything else. Is everything else lining up? And then that definitely helps your uh, choice. Can I add to the height and age thing? Um, just to, I mean, I, maybe I didn't mention everything, but basically, uh, from what I, what I remember reading, uh, the studies that were done was that if uh, um, psychologically if a male is taller and older then naturally uh, for whatever reason it's easier for the couple the the husband naturally has he's older so he's more mature uh, to a certain extent right 
And uh, for the female, it also works out. Why does it work out for the female? Is because she's naturally younger than him uh, and doesn't have to worry about physical uh, upkeep as much as she would if she was older than him um, in regards to being attractive and things of this nature. That was something I read, but it's something that's important to, again, going back to what Mulana Hamza said, um, you know, everyone, you won't find the, the perfect ideal person. We're all flawed human beings. Um, and basically we are, uh, everyone's flawed. We, we're trying to look for the person that will work with our flaws and we work with their flaws to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if we go in with that mindset that everything has to be perfect, then uh, you'll never find the perfect person. What you will find is the person that's flawed that's perfect for you. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make that uh, a means of uh, happiness for us in this world as well as in the year after. Yeah, mashallah. Well said. Um, I'll add to one thing which uh, I heard from my uh, teachers is marriage is not uh, a union of two perfect beings. It's a union of two imperfect beings. And the whole goal of marriage is to make it work. So uh, with that, uh, we'll proceed to the third dimension of the same question we have been asking when you're looking into the spouse. What should you look at? So we looked at the perspective from a man's perspective, from a woman's perspective, and third dimension is the, from the parent's perspective. Uh, so if I can open the, as I'm coming from a, a migrant background, and most of us here are, our parents are, ourselves are from, uh, you know, migrated this, to, to this country. So uh, the question is like, what is the, um, you know, the opinion uh, of the scholars here uh, of a, getting married or bringing a spouse from back home? That's a very good question. Um, I think there's no right or wrong answer about, uh, well, first of all, let's define back home, right? Because that can be very different. Uh, most people are from the subcontinent, maybe the Middle East, but we mean probably a Muslim country or a majority Muslim country in Africa, Asia, somewhere around there. So the thing is that practically speaking, First of all, and this also is a disclaimer that has to be said, a lot of these issues are not necessarily uh, halal or haram issues. And there's not necessarily a commandment in the sharia that you have to either. That it's, for example, more rewarding if you, if you marry from overseas or it's less rewarding here or vice versa. These are things that are more, uh, you can say, uh, advice or guidance, irshad as they call it. So the first thing you have to understand is that a person being from a Western country, this is from my experience with my community, a person being from a Western country does not necessarily mean they are very influenced by a Western lifestyle, right? So for example, in this crowd over here, there's going to be people in their cuisine and their food, what, how they speak, all of that, they are very American, right? You live here, you like American food, you speak like an American, right? You play ball, whatever. So, and then in the same crowd, there are people here that maybe can't even speak English, or they struggle with English. Or even in the younger crowd, there'll be people that are more, for lack of better terms, desi as we call it, which basically means they're more inclined to an Eastern culture, right? And when it comes to the East, the same applies from, for people over there. Because when you're talking about marrying from back home, well, what exactly is the person like? Because there could be a person who's from a village, and they don't know English, and they are very, very, you know, villagers' lifestyle. But in the same India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, you know, Egypt, Syria, there are people, their lifestyle is very, very Western. 
not necessarily in a bad or good sense. I just mean that the stuff that they eat, the books that they've read, they can speak English. They went to a school and they learned English. Um, you know, they're, uh, the way they joke, a lot of that can be influenced by that. So first of all, it really depends on the person and you as well. So how Western or Eastern are you? How Western or Eastern are they? And then that can definitely help define because if, it's, if you're polar opposites, a lot of times difficulties will come. So a person, for example, you live here in the US, you only speak English, you don't know Urdu, you don't know Arabic, and then you marry someone who only knows <laughs> right, Urdu Arabic, right? And you're just sitting there, you're like a translator to figure out what's going on. So that, you know, obviously, and then your lifestyle, the things that you like, your preferences, and just the way your whole life is structured is completely different to them. They're used to, if you, I, I was in Pakistan for six years, a lot of villagers, they actually, people here might be surprised, they don't sleep indoors. They sleep on their roof, right? They can't sleep until they get the fresh air, right? Here, most of us probably can't even sleep if we just uh, said that the brothers have to sleep in the courtyard, right? I mean, how many people would be able to sleep in the courtyard? But right now you're married and, you know, she says, hey, I, I can only sleep outside. Let's go in the backyard. And he's, he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's just a, a lighthearted example. But the point is, is that there's a lot of lifestyle differences. So you have to see what is your lifestyle like? How influenced are you? How Eastern or Western is your lifestyle? And how Eastern or Western is their lifestyle? And then you can come uh, to a better, uh, better understanding. Can I add to that? So same thing. I'm going back to the same principle I mentioned. As long as the constants are there, um, you know, love and affection is there. The, the, the husband can provide uh, financially, love and uh, financially, as well as love and affection to the wife. And, uh, that, uh, and, and the wife can respect uh, and adore and um, love her husband. Then all the variables can change. You know, sometimes uh, speech or, you know, how well a person speaks English can possibly be compensated by other things, right? Great akhlaq or great career. Um, just the way they speak English doesn't really matter. So it, they, certain things can be compensated for the other. And like I mentioned, just going back to what I, I mentioned before, as long as the constants are there uh, and the, 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 the main uh, factors are touched upon, then anything can go. And it's, it has a lot to do with temperament. Uh, you know, it's, it's for the, the potential bride and groom to, to, to judge. Um, and um, yeah, basically, as long as the constants are there, anything, you know, the variables can change. True. So basically, there's no binaries. The, the answer is not a binary. It's a spectrum. Right. And you need to understand the, where, where do you stand in that spectrum. So with that, <clears throat> I'll go to the next topic or the subtopic of this discussion is, you know, uh, my, one of my Bukhari teachers uh, put it very well. Uh, so I'll use this example, Australia example. He said, the... <clears throat> The marriage in the Western context versus Islamic context are opposites, which is as follows. He says, in, in the Western context, relations is the beginning and the end is the commitment. Like, you, you have relations and then you get to know the person and then ultimately you commit and you get married. But the Islamic paradigm is the opposite, which is the commitment is the first. You, 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 marry, you marry first. And the relations is next to find out and get to know the person. So, with that in context, um, how can we understand this paradigm that many of us are, are thinking about it or subconsciously have this in our minds, which is, you know, I need to really love a person to get married, 
I mean, how can I get married to a person which I don't know or don't love or don't respect? So how would you kind of go about answering that question? I, just before you start, yeah, that's probably the most asked question, right? How do I get to, how do I, how do I marry someone I don't really know? So I think, I mean, we can rephrase this question because if we said that if you know the person before marriage, that would mean that your marriage would be successful, definitively. Then we can say that you know Islam or our tradition, uh, you know, is not uh, addressing the necessary. Because look, I mean, if you know the other person, your marriage is successful. So why would Islam not consider that? But the way to phrase that uh, is with another question: is that if you know someone and you've lived with them, you moved in together. Does that necessitate that your marriage is going to last? Statistics say the otherwise, right? The vast majority of Westerners, uh, if you look at the divorce rate really in the last 20 years, I mean, it's, there's a substantial rise. And that's for people that have lived courtship, moved in together, then after that, they're, uh, they're splitting ways. So what we know is that getting to know, to know a person this is problematic because of two reasons. First of all, none of us are the same people. So actually, everyone that you meet here, right? You meet them now and they come across a certain way, they're a certain way. Five years later, that same person is different. They've changed. We as human beings will evolve in our marriage. So it's not going to be the same person. So when you marry someone, even if theoretically you know them, you know everything about them, there's nothing hidden, every uh, character flaw, every character, uh, praiseworthy characteristic, six, seven, ten years down the line, things could change. And things are going to change. And then you'll have a problem with it. So that doesn't necessitate that. The second thing is that even if you live with them, certain aspects don't come out for a long time. It could be decades. I mean, there's an example of like, for example, if you look at uh, where there's an unfortunate uh, you know, incident, for example, a school shooting or something of that sort. A lot of the people will say, I knew this person for a long time. They were my neighbor. Some people, their family members will say, no, everything was normal. There was nothing that we saw abnormal. We could never have expected it. We never thought of it. And you could say, well, how do you not know? It's because just because you live with the person or just because you've gotten to know them does not mean that you know everything about them. That's why there's a lot of stories about uh, spouses saying that I knew this person and then you get married and then there's uh, episodes of domestic violence, right? But if you lived with the person for three years, wouldn't you have known that this person is an abuser? Not necessarily. So the question should be framed that if living together and getting to know meant that your marriage is going to be solid, things are going to be good, then we can ask that, but statistics say that the getting to know actually does not necessitate. Rather, majority or a vast majority of marriages that are based off after courtship, they fail. So that isn't a solution or that isn't something that... Uh, I'll give you some concrete like, uh, stats on this. Uh, I found a study from Nicholas uh, Wolfinger, uh, which is a very interesting 2016 study, which says that a woman who has premarital relation are more likely to get divorced when they get married. Interesting. Just like, you know, direct correlation that this study, so would that... Yeah, uh, if, I, if I may add to that. So, a few things, because uh, this question usually does come up, um, you know, how do, I how do I get, how do I marry someone I don't really know? Um, 
I mean, if you look at our parents' generation, they, you know, they married sometimes without get, knowing each other at all, uh, and then they've been married 50, 60, you know, 70 years sometimes. You know, people are married for so long. Now, nowadays, if a marriage makes it past like 50 days, you're like takbir, Allah, you know, like it's 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 things have changed. Um, so a few things that come to mind. Number one, if we really, what does getting to know one another mean? So does it mean you get to actually hang out, you know, go out for dinner, you know, spend some time together? How much does a person allow uh, until a person can say, I know them? In fact, if you really think about it, if you, if you had to hang out, go out for dinner, and get to know one another, is that really them? Right? Is that 120%? Are you being 120% yourself? Or are you just putting on a show? And are they putting on a show also? Is it actually them? Is it actually you? Are you really getting to know them? That's, that's one of the things that comes to mind. Uh, secondly, you know, people that, you know, like Malana Hamza uh, alluded to, you can be married for 20 years and still be learning about your spouse. You're not going to go through every situation with your spouse in that getting to know period. You know, how do they act when they get angry? How do they act when they lose their job? How do they act when, you know, um, a child is born? How do they act when the in-laws come over? None of that's going to happen. How do you really know a person? So basically, what you need to do is do your basic homework. Get to know the person through uh, their, their relatives, their family, uh, who, you know, their local imam, their counselor, their teachers, their... Uh, family members, people have done business with them and their family, um, you know, your family members spending, spending time with them, so uh, the bride or the potential bride's father spending time with the potential son-in-law, or the mother and the daughter of a brother spending time, the mother or sister of a brother spending time with the potential spouse, getting to know them like that uh, usually does a lot. And this is not only like Mufti Minhaj usually explains, very beautifully explains, this is not only in our minds. It's crazy. It's absolutely mind-boggling that we, you know, you don't know a person at all, and then you marry them. How are you going to know that you're going to love them? It's not only a question in our minds. It's not only a question in your mind. It's not only the question a question in the in the youth's minds. But Allah Subhanahu wa Taala mentions the same thing in the Quran when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala talks about how. He places mawadda in rahma between a husband and a wife. Allah starts out the ayah by saying, Wamin ayatihi. It's from his miracles that he has created for you spouses. And then he places this mawadda, this deep affection, this deep love and rahma between you, even though you never knew each other before. Wamin ayati. It's from Allah's miracles that Allah has opened this new door, this new relationship for you, and now all of a sudden you're ready to take a bullet for the person, right? You're ready to give your life for the person. But yesterday you didn't even know them. This is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's miracles that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places mawadda and rahma between the husband and the wife, even though they didn't know each other before. And this happens in other relationships in our lives as well. For example, Growing up, just personally, I don't have any paternal, sorry, maternal uncles. I don't know, in, in the Indian subcontinent, we say mamu. I don't know how a mamu would be like, because that door, that relationship door was never open for me. As a child growing up, as an adult now, I don't know what it feels like to have a maternal uncle. Now, 
Alhamdulillah, through the fadl of Allah, I became a maternal uncle myself. And that door, that relationship door opened for me. And, you know, it completely blew my mind that this baby I never knew, that's not actually my child, but it's my sister's child, became the most beloved person on the face of the earth to me. Right? Over, overnight, this child became the most beloved person for me. I'm ready to spend all my wealth to the extent that my parents are like, what are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm buying my niece everything that I never had as a child, and I'm going all out and spending, and you know, all this love that me, myself, as a human being, I never even knew I had this love in my heart for, for a person. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened that door for me. And now I know what a mamu or what, a, what, a, what I missed out on. <laughs> now I know what I missed out on and not having a maternal uncle, right? But Allah opened that door. And now, now that relationship's new. All of us will go through this. We will, uh, that door of a, a spouse will open up for us. The love, mawadda and rahma, that's Allah's responsibility. He will place that mawadda and rahma between you. You will have in-laws, new relationship. That you'll never, you never had a father-in-law before, you never had a sister-in-law, brother-in-law. These are all new relationships that will continue to open for us. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places that mawadda and rahma between the husband and the wife. So this is mu'min ayati from Allah's miracles. Yet, does this mean we don't do our homework? No. Does this mean that we don't uh, get to know the person uh, through the ways that the Sharia has allowed us for? No. We still do our homework, get to know who they are, make sure, you know, have a conversation, make sure we're on the same page, ask the important questions that we need to ask, uh, our families get to know them, etc., etc. All that still has to be there. I'm not saying go into it completely, you know, blindly without doing your homework. No, do your homework. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will inshallah put the mawadda and rahmah. All these, uh, these, these feelings of I don't really know them. You could be married for 20 years and not really know your spouse. Right? So these are just um, wasawis of shaitan. Just make sure you do your homework. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take care of the rest. InshaAllah, would put, with this, I'll, I'll, we'll end the subtopic with this last question, which is, you know, some of the delays we have seen in our own families and you know, people we know or uh, people who have consulted us is the aspect of delaying a marriage because you're not quote-unquote independent, quote-unquote earning, quote-unquote haven't finished your bachelor's or master's or PhD. So this, this aspect of delaying a marriage because of these reasons, if you can shed some light on it. So the question is basically, would you, how would you feel delaying a marriage because I don't have a job yet, or I haven't finished my degree yet, or I haven't uh, finished my PhD yet? Right, delaying marriage. So this is a, this is a, a, a modern day phenomena. I mean, if you think about it in the historical context, hundreds of years ago, uh, as soon as uh, men were of age, um, and they, they would have already picked up a skill, they would all, already picked up a trade, and where, when they were of age, they would already be able to provide for themselves and for their families. And as soon as they were, you know, in today's day and age, maybe 16, 17, 18, uh, they were ready to provide for themselves, their family. They had a skill, a trade, and, you know, they would get married and move on. Uh, it's a modern-day phenomenon now that, you know, we're in our early 20s, late 20s, and we're still on our parents' couch in the basement playing video games and not know how to earn for ourselves. That's a, that's, that's, that's a modern-day phenomenon. And so how do we get around this? It's, it, and and the, on the opposite end, subhanAllah, like the, the, the challenges are that much harder, 
right? So think hundred, hundreds of years ago, uh, a young man has the skill, the, the trade, he knows how to provide for himself, and he gets married, um, and he's all set. Today's day and age is the exact opposite, right? We're still playing video games and uh, expecting food, hot food on the table for our mother and them for, for them to iron our clothes and wash our clothes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and not also have a trade, a skill until we're in our late 20s or mid 20s at least. And then the challenges, the hypersexualization of, of the, the, the society that we live in, that zina is literally at our fingertips, is, is just like the worst situation that we could be in. And so uh, this responsibility now falls on, I mean, everyone has a share in this responsibility. The young man, the young woman have a share in this responsibility of knowing what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala expects from us. The parents have a, a share in this responsibility of knowing that because of the situation we find ourselves in, right, post-industrial revolution, after all of this, we have to kind of come up with creative ways to provide, uh, for, provide that for our uh, our children. Whatever that looks like, however that looks like, uh, it depends. But basically, we're in a really difficult situation and then it puts the onus on uh, the young men and women as well as parents to come up with some type of a solution. So is delaying marriage the, uh, you know, the, the solution? I don't think so. Right? Sometimes we think like, oh, my son's in his uh, late 30s or early 30s and we'll get him married. Well, what do you think he's been doing for the last 20 years? You know, he hasn't been praying Qiyam al-Layl. You know, I mean, Allahu A'lam, it's possible. But with all of the things at our fingertips, it's a very scary situation. And so that kind of forces us to come up with and create uh, new uh, solutions to this problem, in my humble opinion. Uh, and that involves everyone. So I don't necessarily think, to answer your question, delaying marriage is the, um, the, the um, answer. I think it's more everyone has to get on the same page and then uh, come to a solution that's a little bit more practical. Would you also agree? Would you also agree if uh, the delay is because of the dream wedding? You know, the dream wedding, <laughs> the the YouTube and the YouTube uh, short clips and the uh, the horse and the helicopter and all of that. <laughs> it possibly could be definitely. I mean, culturally. You know, um, we've made, unfortunately, nikah very difficult, uh, and that naturally makes zina very easy. Um, and um, it, 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 it could be because of a dream wedding. I mean, it shouldn't be because of a dream wedding, right? Uh, like you mentioned earlier, the nikah happens through literally a phrase, right? The fact that it happens, it happens so many times. I served as an imam for five years, and I remember like all of the push and all the preparation for the wedding, and you know, and the card and the invitation and the setup and the hall and the banquet and the the horse and the carriage and the you know all of all of that stuff. And um, then when I would go perform a nikah, it's happened many multiple multiple times. You know, the bride, the groom, and the father-in-law, the mother-in-law, they kind of look at you like you're crazy. Like, hey, that's it? I was like, that's it. Like, ijab and qubul and th that's it, that's it. Like, they're so mind-blowing. Like, what, did I just put like $300,000 into this just for like literally a few phrases and that's it? That's it. It's so simple. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet sallallahu the deen has made uh, nikah so simple. Unfortunately, we make it very complicated. So if it's because of a dream wedding, it shouldn't be. 
Um, and again, that's kind of part of the solution, getting everyone on the same page and moving away from um, you know, the, the big wedding. Would you like to add something? <clears throat> yeah, one thing I'll just add is that the, the benchmark for knowing if you're ready to get married is if you can fulfill the rights that come as a spouse. So for example, for a man, the primary right is to provide. Now, if you can provide, like you're still studying, and you don't have a job that you can't really provide, and, you're, and that's Swami, a very good point, if your family can intervene and they can help you out, for example, your parents can say that, you know, you can, um, you know, we're willing to help you out, you know, cover your expenses until, you know, you graduate, for example, then that's great. That, that, that's great. But if they're not willing to do that, then primarily, and, and men need to know that, that it's their responsibility, your responsibility as a, as a husband to provide for your wife. And the wife, if she's, uh, you know, able to fulfill her responsibilities in the marriage, that's the criteria that should be looked at. And that can differ from person to person. So for example, one person, they were uh, studious, they did well in school, and you know, they, they got themselves a job, and you know, things were good. Another person, they struggled. Maybe they uh, dropped out of college. Maybe they can't have a stable job. They don't, they're in debt, right? Things change for different people. Based off of that, whether them getting married at that time, all of these variables take part in that. So sometimes the delay, it's not always bad. Sometimes the delay is because you don't have, you're not fulfilling the requirements that you would need to, in order to get into the marriage. But many times, it's without reason, as you mentioned as well. So you have to definitely look at that. The second thing what Mawlana Osman mentioned is also very pertinent, uh, which is the, the, that nikah has been made easy. But I think when we look at the hadith of the Prophet mauna, that the nikah, which has the most barakah, is the one that has the least effort or the least expense, we think of just the wedding day and having it in the masjid, right? Well, the reality is you can have your nikah in the masjid, but everything that came before and after, those expectations can be very extravagant. So for example, the idea that there has to be a three-country honeymoon, right? That there has to be, that this amount of money has to be spent. The idea that I have to have uh, all of this done and ready before marriage, and then I can, uh, we can say that this is going to be a marriage, that has to be altered too. So it's not just the simplicity of the nikah day itself, or the event, it's everything that comes before and after, the luxuries, the amenities, the ideas, the clothes, the jewelry, like how much jewelry should the husband gift his, his new wife, right? Like we're not talking about the mahr, we're talking about that. And those things should be considered because urf is, you know, culture is considered. But when it gets a bit too, uh, you know, it gets a bit too extravagant or not even extravagant, it just becomes very, very difficult because of all of these things that you've put around marriage. So if you lessen the clutter around the actual marriage, what really needs to be done, then that significantly helps too. Sure. Well said. <clears throat> I'd like to term the, uh, the topic you have been discussing is basically inflation in marriage. You know, same the butter and the bread you used to get for 99 cents, it's not 2.99. So this is the same thing that, that's happening and it's very detrimental to the society. So will that, we'll proceed to the next topic. Before we proceed, um, uh, just an announcement. Uh, brothers need to move up. If everyone could just kind of scoot up, make space for the brothers in the back before we continue, inshallah. Um, there's uh, more brothers coming in, inshallah. 
جزاكم الله خيرا so we'd like to proceed with the the next topic which is pretty interesting and i'll start off with some stats to give you a context of where the questions are coming from or what is the urgency of the questions the first thing is which is uh, it's a pretty old study, but uh, still kind of, uh, if anything, it's, it has gone worse, which is in 2015, 70% of the women uh, who has young children less than 18 work. So 70% of the uh, women who are, has younger children in 18, they do work. The second stat, which is 61% of the women who are working they conclude that motherhood is a disruption to their career. Second step. Third is as follows. It says a, 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 a great number, which is 72%. 72% of the women working say that their careers, jobs, have affected their families. They do themselves agree, 72%. So with that stats in our mind, uh, what, what would you say for a family uh, which has this, uh, a different dynamic, which is the woman who's the breadwinner or, or woman who's earning more? I mean, this is after marriage. You know, the first thing that we spoke about was the actual proposals. Now this, this happens to be the case that the, the family dynamics changes, and this is what happens. So if you can expound on that. Um, so uh, the change of, so we have to understand, I think, again, from the historical perspective, um, it's not just Islam, but this was the way that the world worked, uh, was that husbands, they financially uh, were responsible for the household, uh, and the wives took care of the household and the children. Um, because there is a shift in gender roles, we understand it from a historical aspect as well as a, an Islamic aspect. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the deen of Islam, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created males and females equal. But our roles are not identical. We've been created equal, but our roles, our responsibilities are not identical. And Islam appreciates this and uh, recognizes this, that male and female are different. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has physically, anatomically, psych you know, in every way, um, there's difference between males and females. And the world that we live in today is kind of blurring these lines, right? The lines are being blurred from, you know, colors to bathrooms to the clothes we wear. All of these lines are being blurred, where in the past there were very uh, distinct roles and responsibilities. Uh, and this is bringing an obvious change in the fi family dynamics. So once we understand this, that historically as well as Islamically, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uh, separated roles and responsibilities. 
then obviously the roles and responsibilities are not equal, they're, they're not identical, they're different. They're, they're different. And the Prophet ﷺ in a hadith mentions, for example, uh, the Prophet ﷺ mentions the curse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is on that male, mutashabbihin uh, bin nisa, who imitates females. And the curse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is on mutashabbihat uh, bin rijal, those that uh, imitate, the females that imitate males. This is a very you know, distinct difference between males and females. And so in the world today, those lines are, are being blurred, and so obviously the responsibilities and the roles are also being blurred. Historically, up until um, you know, World War I, World War II, it was very simple. The male, he um, financially re you know, was responsible for the household, and the female, she helped take care and maintain the household. Now, children, you mentioned children and the stats of children. Children are a project for both males and females, right? It's a project for the husband and the wife. It's not solely on the wife. And it's not solely on the husband. It's a project between both males and females, between husband and wife. The West kind of paints this picture that uh, children are a nuisance. You want to get them out of the house, right? Um, date nights and things like this, which is, I'm not against it. Obviously, it's important and it's needed from time to time. But um, th this idea, this notion that kids are a nuisance, uh, in fact, in Islam, kids are a blessing and a trust that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given uh, the husband and the wife. And they work together in trying to fulfill the tarbiyah and fulfill the trust that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the, the responsibility that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put on them. Again, the roles and the responsibilities are different. Now, in today's day and age with, you know, uh, a lot of things changing, the roles and responsibilities remain the same, right? Uh, historically, if you think about it, in, in World War I, World War II, before that, females, they stayed at home, they took care of the home. And when all the males were urged to go to war, uh, the females were asked to come out into the workplace. Begrudgingly, initially, they came into the workplace. And then the capitalists and the, the, the employers, they all saw, well, hey, listen, look, the uh, female workers are actually better workers. They're more observant of the rules. They're, uh, we can pay them less, right? All of these things. And it just became something that was better for them. And so now things are changing at home. Things are changing at home. Uh, Islamically, the responsibility is still the same. The tarbiyah is upon both the husband and the wife. Um, yes, a majority for primarily the husband financially is responsible for the wife and, and the family. And the wife is primarily responsible for the tarbiyah of the children. But, again, I'm not excluding one or the other from each other's responsibility. The Prophet ﷺ, for example, in the maintenance of the house, we know the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha where she mentions the Prophet ﷺ at home took care of his own needs and attended to the needs of the household. Um, in one hadith, the Prophet uh, Aisha radiallahu anha very beautifully said that the Prophet ﷺ, he, was, he would be so you know, kind and loving at home and take part in all of the things in the household chores, so much so that we would joke and laugh, so much so that we forgot that he was a Prophet ﷺ. Right? So you see there's the legality of it, the roles and responsibilities, and then the actual uh, practicality of it that we see in the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. That the Prophet ﷺ was so kind and so loving at home that Aisha says that we joked so much so that I forgot that we're dealing with a Prophet here. And then the Adhan would go off. 
And when the adhan would go off, we would see him completely change and we would be, remembered, we would be reminded that we're dealing with the Prophet and then he would then go fulfill his rights uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So um, the, the, the shift in the roles we see um, are, are affecting the family dynamics, of course. But as Muslims, we have to understand the difference between the two the roles and responsibilities of the two and what the deen uh, requires of me as a husband at home, as a wife at home, what the, the deen requires of me and what my responsibilities are in the household. Um, time of the Prophet Asma came to the Prophet as a spokeswoman from the Ansar and she asked the Prophet O Prophet of Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is addressing all of the men in the Quran time and time again. You know, what about us? The question from Asma radiallahu anha wasn't, you know, what about us and we're equal. It was more from, you know, from a humility aspect. Are we doing something wrong that Allah is not, not addressing us? Do, they, do, do, do these men have some type of, you know, are they better than us in this way? And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet sallallahu waited for revelation to be revealed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed in Surah Al-Ahzab the very famous ayat in the Muslimin wal Muslimat wal Mu'mineen wal Mu'minat wal Qaniteen wal Qanitat wal Sadiqeen wal Sadiqat 10 characteristics believing men believing women Muslim men Muslim women Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered the question of Asma radiallahu anha and said no you're all equal when it comes to reward Right? They will all receive maghfira. They will all receive ajran azima, great reward. Right? The, 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 the whole issue of the, the pay gap in the genders. The pay gap from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is equal. Right? The jobs are different. The responsibilities are different. All of them will be forgiven. All of them have a great reward. But the difference is in the roles and the responsibilities. So um, with the changing, so more practically in our life today, is, would you say, am I saying it's, uh, it's impermissible or it's wrong for uh, a, a sister to go out and work? Not necessarily. As long as, like I said, the variables can change, the responsibilities and the constants have to stay the same. And so what's our responsibility? The tarbiyah of the children. Uh, and, you know, having a... Um, a tranquil, uh, you know, a home that's full of tranquility. There's this whole, I remember when I was an undergrad, I read a paper, it was written in the 1980s about, I forgot the, the name of the author, but it was about religious socialization and how in the past it was the mothers that had, what is religious socialization? It's how a human being learns and internalizes religion. How a human being, how we as human beings learn and internalize our deen, our morals, our ethics, our values. And that if you read papers from 1970s, 80s, 90s, it was all about how the mother has this role of tarbiyah more than the father. The father's role was very minimal. If you read papers from just a few years ago, then it's changed, where now the father's role is a, is a big role in the, in the religious socialization of the child. So the reason for this is because society is changing. And so, um, like I said, the, the roles and responsibilities are the same, um, though different things may change, but as Muslims, we have to realize what our roles and responsibilities are and stick to them. Uh, and that's, inshallah, what will bring out the tarbiyah and the, um, you know, the amana that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us as parents to our children, to our children. And we think long-term, long-term, uh, in the long run, for example, 
right? The, the mother, when it comes to, if you had to, the mother has three times as many rights as the father does, right? The, the Prophet ﷺ was approached by the man and the man asked, you know, who do I give my time and my love? The Prophet ﷺ said, Ummuk, your mother. Three times. Then he said, your father. The reason for this was also the tarbiyah and the love of the mother, uh, you know, it can only come from the mother. That aspect of love and tarbiyah and teaching comes from the mother and that's what Allah naturally has intrinsically put inside of the mother. And so uh, that's why the reward is great. That's why the virtue is great. In the Western society, uh, if uh, someone, if, if, if a mother is working, then um, uh, getting pregnant is looked at as a burden, right? Having a ch child is looked at as a burden. Whereas in the deen, having a child, this is a virtue. The pain, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions reward. The hadith of the Prophet ﷺ mentions reward for the pain that the mother goes through, through the birth of a child. The virtue and the reward, that only a mother can have. And that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given um, our sisters. That virtue and that reward for the trouble that they go through is not without reward. On the Day of Judgment, that's that maghfirah and that's that ajran azimah. So um, I think to kind of go back to, to, to the question is we have to re recognize our role and responsibilities and give, what's, give it its, its uh, you know, whatever is priority, give it its due importance. Everything, inshallah, after that will fall into place by the fadl of Allah. Uh, would uh, would um, when Osman, um, uh, you know, th uh, this uh, the the bringing of of uh, the relation between a child and the motherhood. The child. I had two studies which I kind of noted in my notes, uh, which I'd like to share, which is very recent studies, which is 2023. This is March 2023, and then uh, the study is from uh, 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 Danish uh, researchers. Who, who outlines two things, which are two different studies. The first study is, they're saying the, uh, the, the grade point average of a child whose mother works full-time versus 10 to 19 hours is, is much greater. So the, uh, the children who, whose mother is earning or working less than 19 hours their grade point average is much higher than the mothers whose children are working full-time. That's a study one. And the second study is very alarming, which they're saying that there's a direct correlation between the, both the couples working and behavioral issues with the child. So an interesting study which just came out. So with that, we'll proceed to the next section, which is the time is running out, uh, so I'll kind of pick and choose from now. Uh, so we'll kind of, uh, we did touch on this. So what I'll do is, the next thing is, I would um, uh, kind of uh, direct the questions to uh, Mala Hamza, which is, uh, how would you deal with the uh, different uh, things in the intimacy of a marriage? What are the dis different things that, that are important that needs to be discussed. If you can highlight them and then uh, kind of explain now. So firstly, just from a general perspective, I think, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to keep the language so it's appropriate for everyone. What we find is that in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he said, Ya ma'ashara al-shabab, man istata'a minkum ul-ba'ata fal-yatazawaj. That 
old group of youngsters and he's advising youngsters that whoever is able from amongst you to marry, there's some difference of opinion over what ba'a technically means, but the general import of the hadith is that whoever is able to marry, then you should. Why should you marry? Two things the Prophet said. One thing is that when you do get married, it's going to help you in lowering your gaze. Help you. Not, it's not going to totally lower your gaze. The, the, the pattern is of tafdeel, a superlative pattern, which means it is more likely or more so going to help you. Uh, definitely because your, you know, your desires will be fulfilled to a large extent. Um, so it'll help you lower your gaze and it'll help you remain chaste. Chastity comes with it. So intimacy is a foundational aspect of marriage, right? And if intimacy, and I'm sure you have more questions on the end, but if intimacy is not being given its due place, you're going to have, first of all, the marriage can fall apart. Most marriages will fall apart. But not other than that, it leads to so many other problems. And so intimacy is a very serious uh, aspect of it. And it's actually one of the grounds where uh, a woman, if she has no other, uh, she has no other complaints, but she can, uh, in, in the traditional Qadi uh, you know, system, she can go to the Qadi. One of the things is that if the husband is not fulfilling that right, and vice versa, if the woman is not fulfilling that right, there's some details to that. But both of them, uh, that's actually a basis to uh, that could uh, be for repelling or for uh, annulling the marriage. So it's a very important right that has to be given its due from both sides. Uh, definitely so. And if you have any particular questions. Yes, um, uh, what you have addressed is the significance of intimacy in marriage. Uh, and then one thing I'll act to, uh, add to this is this issues in intimacy will never come out uh, explicitly. It's like, it will never say, okay, this person or this, uh, my spouse is not giving me enough or, you know, this and that. But it would come indirectly. So it's very hard to decipher it. Do you agree that? Yeah, no doubt. Okay, so with that, we'll proceed to the next question, which is, you know, this is a common ishkal uh, uh, from the, you know, Orientalist or uh, you know other uh, progressives is how can Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam curse the woman who refused to inhabit with her husband? Yeah. So the hadith uh, is that the Prophet sallallahu said that uh, when a man calls his wife, ida da'a ahadukum or ida da'a rajul, when a man calls his wife ila firashihi to to his bed, fa'abat and she refuses. Uh, and he goes to sleep while he's uh, angry. Bata ghadban. Then, bata tal'anuhu al-malaika. She'll sleep in a state where the angels are cursing her. And the hadith is very, seems very direct, seems very severe, but there's actually many ahadith. I'll give you one just to, uh, you know, two birds, one stone. I'll give you one that's the most, you can say, explicit in this regard, where the Prophet said that if a man calls his wife uh, to the bed and she's, uh, she should answer his call even if she's at the tanur, which is the tandoor as we know kind of the clay oven um, now this seems very extreme why would this be the case and 
keep in mind that when the Prophet is saying she should answer him, basically when she's cooking, you can understand that when you're cooking, you can't really pause. So it could make the food go to waste or it could burn the food, especially the tanur, the clay oven. You're sticking, uh, right, bread and roti. I'm sure everyone's getting hungry. It's lunchtime now. But you're sticking fresh, you know, piping hot rotis coming out of there. That could burn. But the point is, is that any uh, commentary of hadith, you pick up very clearly what's being explained is that we're not talking about when, and this goes both ways, by the way. It's not just for the wife, it's for the husband too. If the husband refuses without any genuine reason and the wife is uh, struggling on, on this regard, this, these warnings apply to him too. The basis of it is that when a spouse does not have a legitimate reason, there's no sickness, there's no uh, inability uh, for intimacy, there's nothing else going on, but without a legitimate reason, for the sake of weaponizing intimacy, or for the sake of using it to get something, or depriving the other person of that, the reason that this person is being cursed is because, again, it's a foundational aspect of the marriage that you're violating. And you're opening up that other person to haram. I mean, if a husband does not fulfill the wife's intimate needs, and she doesn't fulfill the husband's needs, who's going to fulfill them, right? So it's going to lead to other problems. Not, that doesn't justify the other spouse seeking a haram means to fulfill their desires. It just means that it's going to cause significant problems. So the context is not uh, the way, is the context, correct context to it is without a reason, without a genuine excuse, when you're doing so to weaponize intimacy, to harm the other person, and there's no legitimate excuse for it, uh, you know, that's what the context is. And to give some practical experience, I mean, uh, you know, I've dealt with a few different cases where actually one of the spouses did admit that they used this uh, out of uh, revenge or anger, that they realize that I'm going to deprive the other person, that that person will then sacrifice on other issues that the couple was having, right? So you're there's a back and forth that you're having, there's trouble that you're having, and you realize how can I make my spouse uh, agree with me on that, right? Put aside whatever that other discussion is. The point is the way that you weaponized intimacy, that is wrong and that is why you will be cursed uh, because you're, uh, you're using that for that purpose. Would that, at least to the second question, is like what is the effect or ill effect of sins and viewing inappropriate contents on the intimacy of the marriage. Yeah, that's also very definitely, uh, obviously if you're watching inappropriate uh, scenes, I think I, there's a dedicated uh, session to this, um, that is obviously going to cause a lot of uh, issues and you can look up the studies to see uh, very basically the biggest problem that people face nowadays with your phones so accessible is that you're seeing all these images and videos and that image and video that you see does not convey everything that you should be that's conveyed when it's a person-to-person -person interaction in other words simple words the person that you see on the screen is not that same person if they were there in real life with you it's a completely different experience so obviously uh you know the whole uh you know online adult industry it's an industry that's uh, literally, you know, if you look at the numbers, it's crazy how, the, you know, the, how big of an industry it is. Part of what that does is that it conditions you to only like certain things 
everything is a flick of the, uh, you know, as a swipe away. You're constantly being bombarded with these images. It's unrealistic. Everything is, uh, you know, color graded, edited, photoshopped. It's all done. It's a specific thing. It's almost like the way that you take this event right here as you're experiencing it. You call in a good videographer. They have a proper, uh, you know, cover on, you know, it, they have a proper coverage of it. You have drone cameras and everything. And then you see that image, that video, it looks so amazing. Right? That's why some people, when they say that, oh, I, you know, I saw the pictures of the haram, but when I go to the haram, it's different. Right? I, I thought it was going to be something different. That's because what you were seeing, they were all pictures and videos. That's not reality. So obviously, if you're addicted to that, you're watching that, you go home. Your spouse, they can't change with a swipe. They're human. There's human aspects to it. It's not just all pixels. So then, obviously, you're going to say, I don't feel satisfied. Uh, you know, you're going to find other excuses, and then obviously at some point it'll lead to, uh, you know, issues in your marriage. One point you just brought up in, in your uh, uh, thing is basically the effects of the phones that we have now. So um, what advice would you give uh, as a married couples uh, on using the usage of the phone, the placement of the phone, if Mona Osman can expound on that? Usage of phones, how many people, let's see, how many people here in this crowd don't have a smartphone? Takbir. <laughs> we got, we've got about six people, maybe, in a crowd of maybe a few hundred. Allahu alam. Just to be very honest, I mean, many of you are from out of state and have traveled um, here. Maybe you can use this opportunity as, a, as an experiment for yourselves. You know, you text your loved ones, tell them, I'm not going to have my phone for the next two days. You know, lock it up, throw it in your car, put it in the glove box, give it to someone else, and just go without it for two days. And I think besides the intimacy issues, the marriage issues, kind of zoom out. All of the issues that we're dealing with as a society today. So like marriage issues, zoom out. You've got mental health issues, zoom out. You know, school shootings, zoom out. Just keep going and going, just keep zooming out and see all of the different issues that we're having as a society today. These are all symptoms of, you know, I, I would argue, you know, arguably, it, they're all symptoms of this. Right? They're all symptoms of the, the major problem is our phones. And it's completely rewiring the way we think. It's rewiring, you know, you know if you look at the increased rate of mental health issues, whether it's depression, anxiety, um, you're looking at marital issues, a lot of this, a lot of all of these issues has to do with the phone and um, go without it for two days. One, I think, in, alhamdulillah, I had the opportunity to spend 10 days without a phone in Ramadan. I think one of the biggest waswas of, of, of shaitan in today's day and age is that you can't survive without it, right? Maybe for the first few days, I was you know, reaching into my pocket to Google something, right? And I, and I thought to myself, like really, like honestly, when do I need it? And I thought, you know, maybe, uh, you know, directions, right, navigation, uh, maybe when I, I need to Google something right away, but to be honest, after 10 days, I mean, and, and, and multiple people, people that spend any amount of time without their phones will tell you, is that it's just a wasusa of shaitan. You will be absolutely fine without it, right? And in fact, you'll realize how much time and, you know, how much of our energy and focus we're wasting on our phones. The, the only commodity like that we have, the most valuable commodity we have, is our energy, our time, our focus. Right? We all as human beings can make more money, 
We all as human beings can make more, you know, have more cars, more houses, more rental properties. We can, you know, have bigger families, etc. The one thing we can't increase in this dunya is our time, right? That's the one thing in our life that we can never, it's the most valuable commodity that we have. And unfortunately, we just waste it all away, through, you know, and it's set up like that. I remember I took a behavior modification class, and this was, you know, a good amount of years ago. Uh, we were talking about how grocery, grocery stores are set up, right? How the aisles are set up, why the unhealthy cereals are all the way at the top, and all the sugary ones are at the bottom, is because the kids will see it. It's right there. Why the candies in the, in the checkout aisle are at the bottom? because the kids will see it. What they see affects them directly. Even the way the colors are used has an effect, right? There's a psychological reason behind what colors are used on flyers and on ads and where things are placed on a shelf so that it, 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 it grabs your attention. The same thing with all the algorithms that are built into, built into our phones. It's all psychology to absolutely rip away who we are. I think all of us can admit if when we spend a day, a night just scrolling, right, at the end of the night, we, though you may have had, had a lot of fun and seen things and be entertained, deep down inside we know we've just absolutely wasted our time. We've wasted a whole day of our life, hours upon hours, and the result of this is all the problems that we're dealing with. And the marriage issues, the intimacy issues is one aspect of it. I'm just saying zoom out and look at all of the problems we're facing with, uh, facing as a society. A majority of them come back to our phones. And, um, you know, my, when, when I was a student, my teacher used to say, this was 20 years ago, he used to say, you know, in today's day and age, a waliullah is someone that prays five times a day and, uh, and, and abstains from sins. Right? You, when we think of waliullah, you're thinking hours of, you know, ibadat and staying up all night and thousands of raka'ah of nawafil and memorizing Qur'an. And he's, 20 years ago, he said, um, today, nowadays, a, a waliullah, a friend of Allah, a saint, a sage, would be somebody who praises five salah on time and abstains from sins. And that abstaining of sins part, though he simplified it, that abstaining of sins part has become so difficult because of this. And it's absolutely ripping us up as a society. So I would just... Um, encourage everyone, come up with practical solutions to put it away. Um, you know, uh, put it in your phone before you actually enter your home. Come up with different ways. Get a dumb phone. The six people that raise their hands, Barakallahu feekum, may Allah hafadkum, Allah yisaidkum, may Allah protect you. But maybe we can meet up with them and ask them, how's life without a smartphone? You know, and just, just see, just live life, honest, live, honestly live life without a smartphone for a few days and we'll really, really um, learn to, and understand how much time we're wasting. In our marriages, in our uh, relationships, we're completely missing out. Basic communication, like telling somebody thank you for holding a door, telling you know, your mother, appreciating her for cooking food. Basic communication skills we're absolutely lacking. Right? Can't even hold a conversation for five minutes. You expect to spend you know, a whole lifetime with someone when you haven't ever appreciated your mother for the food she cooks. You've never had, like, told somebody thank you for, for the things they do. Basic communication skills we absolutely are lacking and we think we'll do fine in a relationship with another person. 
like spare them the difficulty and, and learn how to live life first. So it's very, very important. The, a lot of the marriage issues we're talking about, intimacy, has a lot to do with communication skills. And we just don't know how to communicate, how to talk out problems, how to mention things, how to appreciate one another. How are you going to be affectionate and loving to someone when you can't say even thank you to somebody? It's absolutely ridiculous where we're heading. So it's very, very important that we really, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all tawfiq. May Allah give me tawfiq to recognize and realize the, 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 um, the, the issue at hand, at hand, quite literally, and um, try to free ourselves from it. And inshallah, our ibadat and our mu'amalat, our mu'asharat, our personal, interpersonal dealings with pe people will naturally get better, inshallah. So one thing I'll just add, you know, mashallah, Osman uh, mentioned that he spent 10 days, and mashallah, we have individuals that, uh, you know, don't have a smartphone. Um, but for the most of us, we'll probably not get rid of our smartphone, right? One of the things that we have to learn is to build habits that are sustainable and that we can actually bring into our lives. So, and there was actually someone in my masjid who comes and he, he told me something. He was struggling with this. He came up with this himself. I have to give him the credit. And he said, what I started doing is when I come to the masjid, I leave my phone in the car. So now this seems like something small, right? It's not like going 10 days or not having a smartphone. But if you think about it, the 10 minutes before Salah, you left your phone in the car, then you came, you prayed, then you did your Sunnah, then you left. Those 30 or 40 minutes, mentally, it's actually, you're able to unlink with your phone. You'll focus on your ibadah most likely. But it's some uh, practical, some measurable way that you're actually getting there. Or for example, some of the tips that I give to youth who struggle with their phone is, for example, set up your charging station and everything outside of your, outside of your room. So your phone shouldn't be on charge next to in your bed, it should be outside of your room, right? These are, you have to, and there's hundreds of ways you can come up with this. Come up with ways of making pockets of times without your phone or distanced from your phone, right? Uh, for a lot of youth who struggle with images, a lot of phones have the option to make it grayscale, where you're, you lose color in your phone, right? That'll, you know, take uh, a lot of the interest out because you're scrolling, but there's no color, right? Your screen time will go down. And there's hundreds of ways, find different ways to either detach from your phone or to decrease your usage. And obviously the haram will uh, decrease as well. Jazakallah khair for that advice. Um, I will kind of try to wrap up the, the, these questions and then we'll go to the questions from the uh, audience and themselves. Uh, I would like to touch on one uh, very uh, important issue is the violence in, in, in the marriage itself. Uh, so uh, I, I was looking for some numbers. This is what I found was, uh, this is uh, American Council, um, uh, American Muslim Council has this number on their website which is one in five they're putting the numbers to 18% of the women in a Muslim marriage do experience some, some sort of domestic abuse. And then, uh, you know, what I started thinking was, is this a Muslim problem? Is this the, because, you know, you have the stigma, or at least they push that agenda in your mind, saying that this is a Muslim problem, because Islam doesn't give the full rights to the Muslim woman, that's why they are abused. So I, I started uh, trying to search for numbers, uh, to my surprise, what I found is one in three women, which is this is uh, not a Muslim context, but one in three women in this country do experience domestic abuse from their partners. 
that's like a double of what Muslim women are experiencing. But there still is a big issue in our community. So if you can give us some advices on people or managers who has this issue, and then how would you deal from both the sides, men and women? So this is definitely like you mentioned. It's, it's, um, it's a problem within our community, but it's one of those things that's socially learned. Right? So people learn it from uh, sometimes their parents or the way that families are run in their community. It's not necessarily a Muslim problem. The problem with the Muslim community is that when someone is engaged in this, they happen to use the deen as a scapegoat or as a means to justify what they're doing. Um, and quite simply, just look at the sunnah of the Prophet And Aisha radiallahu anha said the Prophet never raised his hand against anyone. No woman, no servant, no one that the Prophet be physically violent, violent against. Um, and unfortunately, the people that in our, in our communities that use the deen as a scapegoat or as a, a means to justify their actions, uh, they're taking... Um, an ayah of the Qur'an and completely m misinterpreting it. I mean, the ayah in it, in it of itself. Um, I'll very quickly uh, just mention it. What, there's extremes on the spectrum, right? There's the extreme where people are justifying it, saying, well, the Qur'an mentions it, you can incessantly beat, you know, they'll use the word beating, right? Your, your spouse. Well, you know, you, you can beat and it mentions it in the Qur'an. The other end of the spectrum of explaining the ayah is saying, no, darb here doesn't mean anything to do with anything physical. It means to separate or things of this nature. So we've got to zoom out of the actual word, فَضْرِبُوهُنَّ Zoom out and look at the whole ayah. فَعِذُوهُنَّ If you fear something, first of all, like, you got to think of the big picture. There should be communication. There should be uh, kindness, loving, uh, love, affection in the home. Uh, following all uh, all of the other sunan of the Prophet ﷺ in a marriage. Now, in a case where there is some type of uh, issue, فَعِذُوهُنَّ The first thing is, you advise one another. So the husband advises the wife in regards to certain issues. So you talk it out. You talk it out. Now, me just saying it, I listed it. فَعِذُوهُنَّ وَهْجُرُوهُنَّ فِي الْمَضَاجِعِ وَضْرِبُوهُنَّ And you feel like we're just flying through this list and getting to the وَضْرِبُوهُنَّ part. But in reality, the first part, it's a whole process. You take your time and advise the person, advise your, your spouse in regards to a certain issue. Now, going back to right, the roles and responsibilities, if those are upheld and there is mutual consultation between the husband and the wife and there's a mutual love and respect for one another, then that should do the job. Right? That should do the job. If it doesn't do the job, step two. You separate uh, from them in, in regards to intimacy. So you separate and not be intimate with your spouse. This in and it of itself, again, this is after so many other ways of, of things that you know, um, were positive for the relationship. It didn't work. Okay, you advise them. It didn't work. Well, uh, then you separate. Separate in the sense of not being intimate with one another. This usually does it. And usually they get um, you know, back together or they work things out. But the third step, وَضْرِبُوهُنَّ the, the, the part that's usually misinterpreted as like beat them. وَضْرِبُوهُنَّ really a, a correct translation, if you look at the context of it, right? not just the text but the context, 
is a physical, so I'm not denying the fact that it's physical, but a physical symbolic reminder. A physical symbolic reminder. You know, sometimes we're um, addressing students and you advise a student, you know, they hear it, you know, the, the, the uh, um, you know, the in through one year, out the other type, right? You advise them again and again and again. It's built on a healthy relationship. You try to advise a student, it doesn't work. Then, there is sometimes it comes to a point where just advising them isn't enough. But there's like a symbolic, physical reminder. Sometimes you just put the hand on the shoulder of the child. And sometimes you look them in the eye. And you tell them, hey, how many times have I told you not to do this? And you speak to the child or you speak to a person. Sometimes it's between friends. You tell a friend, you hold, just holding their hand. A symbolic, physical reminder. F holding their hand and speaking to them is a lot more... Uh, you know, it, it, effective than just giving, you know, natural advice. So the spectrum sometimes, there's, you know, incessantly beating sometimes is used, and the other end of the spectrum is we're completely just, you know, it doesn't even mean anything physical, but I would argue and say a f physical, symbolic, and this is, you know, these are mentioned in books of tafsir, reminder. Uh, a physical symbolic reminder between the husband and the wife. Now, what happens is, the, usually it doesn't even get this far. Is it obligatory to do this? No, it's optional. Or no one said it's like far to go here. It's absolutely optional. But it's something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran as a means of an extreme case where all of the, 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 the points were checked off, healthy relationship, all everything that had to go through happened and it still didn't work. Is it mandatory now to do this? No, it's just optional. And there's other ways around it also. But what ends up happening is the deen is used as a scapegoat and people use this to justify their, um, uh, to justify their wrongdoings. Um, again, what's our map? What's our blueprint? What's our guide? The Prophet And what did Aisha radiallahu anha say? That the Prophet was never violent, never, rose, never picked up his hand against anyone. And so the way of the Prophet is the way forward. Um, a lot of this has to do with communication issues. People really, really, really need to work hard on learning how to communicate and having love and affection within the home. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if there isn't tranquility at home, then there's something missing. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us uh, all tawfiq to follow the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa in all of our relationships. Jazakumullah khairan. Ameen. Uh, with that, we'll, we should be concluding right now. Uh, so we'll, I'll ask both the scholars to give their, in 30 seconds, their last parting advice to the audience. So uh, I think two things are most important. Number one is uh, taqwa. Uh, that the Prophet ﷺ in the nikah of the khutbah, the three ayahs that he'd recite every single time are all about taqwa, fear Allah. Uh, and if you fear Allah, you're cognizant of that, inshaAllah, you will fulfill your spouse's rights. The second thing I think is that uh, anything that seeks to infiltrate your marriage, that's hurting your marriage, that's being done wrong in your marriage, fix that from your part. If each spouse does that, inshaAllah, uh, your marriage will be one that is uh, successful um, my last uh, words of advice would be learn um, those of you who are uh, looking to get married may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it easy for you but you've got to learn you've got to do your homework there's, there's books out in the book stall I've seen um, uh, Mufti Abdurrahman's book uh, the handbook on marriage I believe it's called it's a blue book great book read it 
uh, take some, we, we offer a fiqh of marriage and divorce course. Uh, it's offered online also during tafhim. Uh, you can look at the, uh, the, 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 the schedule, the syllabus and all of that. But learn, it doesn't have to be here, anywhere. Learn the rights and responsibilities that the husband and the wife have, what a relationship actually is, and work on it before you just jump into it. Learn about yourself, learn about what your needs are, what, your, what you as a human being, what your intentions are. Uh, before you jump into this, learn, educate yourself, uh, get advice, and don't just jump into it uh, blindly, but follow the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, the guidelines given to us by the sharia, and inshallah everything will fall into place. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless all of us with whatever intentions we've come with. People come uh, to the house of Allah, we, we have our difficulties, we have our issues. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala remove all of the difficulties that any one of us are going through. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for those of us who are looking for jobs, bless us with jobs. Those of us who are looking for spouses, bless us with the best of spouses who will give us the happiness of this world, the happiness of the akhirah. Ameen ya rabbil alameen. Jazakumullahu khairan. Jazakumullahu khairan, Shaykh Hamza Imtiaz and Mawlana Usman, for that amazing and very informative program and discussion. Alhamdulillah, I think we all benefited greatly. Um, just a few announcements, inshallah. We will have a break now from 12.45 to 1.30. 1.30 will be Salatul Dhuhr. Uh, this is an opportunity for all of us to have lunch and get refreshed, inshallah, to continue uh, after Dhuhr. There are many amazing programs lined up as well. Uh, additionally, we can visit the bookstore, as Mawlana Usman mentioned. Um, there's a book, Healthy Muslim Marriage, by Mufti Abdurrahman Mangira. Inshallah, we can uh, buy that to address this and learn more about this topic. I also want to give a special thanks to Mawlana Mustafa uh, for moderating the discussion. Uh, additionally, everyone is please asked to pick up their luggage from the gym and put it on the racks. As you know, the gym is being used for uh, multiple purposes, so we, want to, we don't want to cause any difficulty to our brothers. Uh, so please, inshallah, if your luggage is out there in the gym, please put it on the racks. Additionally, uh, please do not sit on the blue taped area in the back uh, of the masjid. Uh, and with that, inshallah, the brothers are, are invited and encouraged to go, inshallah, and freshen up and have lunch and be back, inshallah, for dhuhr at 11.30. Jazakumullahu khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.